When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Steven Spielberg presents a Don Bluth film. The story of a little lost boy in a big new world. A story that will live in your heart forever. An American tale rated G. Hello movie viewers and movie lovers. My name is Tim Williams and I'm the creator and host of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. We talk about all the great and sometimes not so great movies from the 1980s. From blockbusters to cult classics to lesser known treasures we discovered on cable TV or the now defunct video rental stores from our childhood. No matter which flick we choose for each episode, we'll have a lot of fun sharing our memories, discussing our favorite scenes, and even learning some behind-the-scenes stories about the cast and crew along the way. So let's jump right into today's episode. Thanks for listening. According to Roger Ebert, this 80s flick is one of the most depressing children's movies of all time. But try telling that to the millions of kids who fell in love with a squeaky-voiced, rebellious, but also adorable kid mouse with immigrating family and the diverse cast of characters who all help him, one way or another, reunite with his family. If you were one of those kids, then you can join Chad Shepard, Hannah Williams, and me as we discuss An American Tale from 1986 on this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. So welcome in, everybody. Glad to have you on this uh, Thanksgiving-themed episode. Uh, it's also our very first animated movie that we've covered on the podcast. And it's also the first episode where I have two co-hosts, which is... Oh, oh take that back. I've had two co-hosts when I've had uh, Laramie and Bethany together, but still kind of different. But first time, the first time for both the co-hosts. So first of all, Mr. Chad Shepard is joining us. How you doing, Chad? I'm doing well, Tim. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. Glad to have Chad. This is his, awesome. technically, this is his second time on the podcast. Unfortunately, <laughs> the first recording we did uh, back at the very beginning of the podcast, uh, we did an episode on Back to the Future that just, it we had all kinds of technical audio issues and and it just got scrapped altogether. But I've got something big coming up with Back to the Future for next season, so stay tuned with that. But also, yeah, yeah. But also joining us uh, this for the very first time is my daughter Hannah. Hello, hello. So she watched the movie with me today, and you had seen it before, right? I've seen it probably like three times, but never remembered how it was. Okay, so it was like watching it again for the first time for her. So she watched it and wanted to join in. So we'll get her uh, input on a few parts as well. So, but excited. Let's jump right in. Glad to have everybody with us. So let's go. So we'll start with Chad. When did you see an American tale for the very first time? Oh, it had to have been, it had to have been in 86 or 87. Okay. Uh, I was, I was seven years old when it came out. (laughs) Uh, I saw a lot of children's movies and my, my parents were very, if it's PG 13, you're not 13. You didn't watch it. Right. I watched a lot of it. It was my, it was my very first Dawn Bluth film. I would, I will say that. Okay. Okay. I, I, I did not see The Secret of Nim, but I did see, I do remember seeing American Tale. Mm-hmm. It, it, there was a possibility that we actually, I was in like, I, I had an after school and we mm-hmm. would go to the movies sometimes. Like I saw, we saw Benji the Hunted and oh yeah, things like that. And I can remember, I probably I probably saw it then too. Very cool. So, yeah. so Hannah, when did you see it for the first time? Do you remember? 
I don't, but I think I was around either eight or nine when I last saw it, when I, like, the first time I saw it. Mm-hmm. Probably. I remember you watching it once where it was on, and that was probably like maybe a year and a half or two years ago. Probably. Yeah. So, yeah. So for me, I saw this in the theater during Thanksgiving. I remember seeing this with my mom. I don't remember if the whole family went or just my mom and I went, but we've always had a tradition of going on the holidays to the movies, either on sometimes on Thanksgiving, sometimes on Christmas, sometimes both. And it was funny because I was doing my research and we'll get to it at the end. But um, Star Trek Four: the voyage home came out the same week as this. And I remember seeing both of those movies in the theater during the holidays. So I don't know if we did like a uh, I think this one came out like right before Thanksgiving. So we saw it like the week I was out uh, for, you know, Thanksgiving holiday. And then I think we saw. Star Trek four actually on Thanksgiving. And that was like my whole family went to see that one. Like my cousins and stuff. We went near my grandparents' house. Anyway, uh, that's what I remember. But I remember this movie. I remember seeing this movie very vividly in the theater and I, I loved it. And then I remember for Christmas, I got a big, like a uh, fifle plush, like stuffed animal kind of thing. And then I got the cassette of the soundtrack as well. So I, cause I love the music in it. So, um, so this one is very, uh, very close to my nostalgic heart, but I did see secret of Nim. I remember seeing that on cable when it came out. So I had seen right, that, was, that was about 82, wasn't it? Yeah, it was 82. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah. And then I think the great mouse detective was also no great mouse detective, I think was Disney. But I remember seeing that one as well. Right around the same time. Yeah, Yeah, I think it was a couple of months before this one came out. So, Hmm. but uh, how long (laughs) had it been since you saw it before watching it for the podcast? Oh, my goodness. It's it's been years. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of years. And unfortunately, not to say I was going to watch it on Peacock, but apparently Peacock doesn't have it anymore. So (laughs) I was able to log into Stars. Stars had it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's where we watched it. So yeah, uh, yeah. So it's been it's been years since I've seen it, but remember the songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Somewhere out there is probably still one of my favorite songs. Oh yeah, for sure. Like from like that movie. Um, I know we'll, uh, you'll, you'll you'll probably get to it, but I remember my uh, my high school chorus. We actually sang that song. In oh one really? Of our concerts. Oh yeah. cool. Yeah. Just. That hook, the hook is my favorite. The the middle part. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. No, <laughs> yeah, no, it's but, it's great. Yeah, it's, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, that was, you know, that's that was the song that that was the reason why I had the soundtrack. And the other songs were fun, but that was definitely the hit yeah. of the of the soundtrack for sure. And then I would always go back and forth. Which was your favorite? Did you like the 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 Linda Ronstadt uh, Ingram? version that was on the radio or did you like the movie version with the squeaky kids well well the, the, the squeaky kids version was very honest yeah uh, exactly I was, I was listening it to like like you said i just finished it before we started this i was like wow they they didn't i don't think they hired any real kid singers <laughs> i think that was legit right voice actors singing that song so right uh it, that was impressive yeah. uh little little you know, I'm sure today they would have gotten like, you know, real talented kid mm-hmm. singers to, to fill in. But, uh, but the Linda Ronstadt and uh, James Ingram, I believe. Yeah. That, I, wanted, that I wanted to call him Jason Ingram and I knew that was wrong. So I just didn't right. say it. <laughs> oh, okay. No worries. <laughs> yeah, you're no, right. That's, but yeah, listen on the radio. That was, you know, that's one of the, the top, top 10 songs. And that's the version we sang for, uh, during my, my chorus. So. Gotcha. Yeah. It's been a, it's been a couple of years since I've, I honestly, I can't remember the last time I watched it all the way through. I know I had a VHS copy of it as a kid uh, right. or teenager. And so, and I think actually was that the what, big ooh, one. Yeah. The big, yeah. The big, the, like, big the one that looks like Disney. Yeah, exactly. Into. Yep. Yeah. Yep. The folds out like the, like a rental, yeah. Uh, thing big plastic yeah but I, but I think my mom 
had kept a copy because she had a bunch of old VHS movies um, mm-hmm. that Hannah and my co- and her cousin would watch. We kept some. Huh? We stole them. We just stole the DVDs. <laughs> well, no, these were the VHS. Remember the VHS movies? Because she had like Little Mermaid and. She had like Little Mermaid, SpongeBob. Um, they're all under the guest, the, the yeah, guest bed. Right. They're all I don't under. think she has them anymore. They're under there. They're still under there? They're still under there, but we, we just took the ones that were like broken and all. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Place. But we did like a, we did a big family yard sale a year ago and she was selling, my mom had one of the little box, not, I say box, but like the small, probably like a five inch TV that you would put like in a kitchen that had the VCR built in. It was like one oh, yeah. unit. And mm-hmm. so she was trying to sell that. And I think she was, we were playing, I think we were playing American Tale on that like during the yard sale to have it planned to show that it worked and i was like man sometimes you forget like i mean i love hd and you know 4k and all that kind of stuff but there's something very nostalgic about seeing those movies on the vhs old format you know the not so crystal clear screen you know what i'm saying oh yeah and going to the video store i remember going to the mom and pop video stores yeah, and and you you look at the box and they had the little key tab and you take the key tab to them and then they go to mm-hmm. the back and give you your VHS. Yep, I remember that. Yeah, uh, I know I rented that movie. I had to rent that movie once or twice as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, cool. Well, let's run. Let's talk a little bit about how the movie came to be. So okay. Hannah, might, Hannah might learn something during this part. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm talking. I'll start talking about Don Bluth as we kind of you know we he. Oh, genius. Yeah, if people don't know the story. So Don Bluth started to work for Disney in 1955 as an assistant to John Lounsbury for Sleeping Beauty. In 1957, he left Disney only two years after being hired. Bluth returned to the animation business and joined Filmation in 1967, working on layouts for the Archies and other projects. He then returned full time to Disney in 1971, where he worked on Robin Hood, Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2 and the rescuers and directed animation portions on Peach Dragon. But on his 42nd birthday in 1979, Bluth, along with Gary Goldman, John Pomeroy, I said that right, Pomeroy, John Pomeroy, and nine fellow Disney animators set out to start his own animation studio, Don Bluth Productions. Bluth was disheartened with the way the Disney company was run. He wanted to revive the classical animation style of the studio's early classics. To this end, Don Bluth Productions demonstrated its ability in its first production, a short film titled Banjo the Woodpile Cat, which I've never seen. <laughs> and this led to work on an animated segment of the live action film Xanadu in 1980. The studio's first feature length film was A Secret of Nim from 1982. Bluth employed 160 animators during the production and agreed to the first profit sharing contract in the animation industry. Though only a moderate success in the box office, the movie received critical acclaim. Later, with the home video release and cable showings, it became a cult classic. Nevertheless, due to the modest gross of an, and an industry-wide animation strike, Don Bluth Productions filed for bankruptcy. So, uh, for those that don't know Bluth, you know it, it has it shares some similarities to the Disney animation style, especially the you know the like you said like the '60s and '70s animation for sure. But he did kind of add his own kind of, uh, I don't know, style to it or his own kind of tone to the movies because they, they did say his movies were a little more dark in tone than uh, than some of the Disney stuff was at that time for sure. That's right. So for American Tale, it began production in December of 1984 as a collaboration between Steven Spielberg, Don Bluth, and Universal Pictures, based on a concept by David Kirshner. Originally, the idea was conceived as a television special, but Spielberg felt it was had potential as a feature film. Spielberg had asked Bluth to make him something pretty like he did with The Secret of Nim. This was Spielberg's first animated feature, and it took some time for him to learn that adding a two-minute scene would take dozens of people and months of work. In 1985, he said he's enlightened now, but he still can't believe it's so complicated. (laughs) (laughs) It was Universal Pictures' first animated feature film since Pinocchio in Outer Space in 1965 and the first animated film that they co-produced. So uh, they took a chance and it it seemed to work for them pretty well. 
Did you just say Pinocchio in outer space? Yes, that was the name of a movie in 1965. Wow. And they said <laughs> it's exactly what it sounds like. Pinocchio goes to outer space. So, oh wow. I take okay. it that I take it that was not a box office hit. So, so there's a lot. I don't never heard of it. Flying with a with a big long nose in outer space. <laughs> Basically, yeah. That is so. And funny. I thought the original Pinocchio <laughs> was weird. <laughs> that sounds so dumb. Yeah. So. So in writing it, uh, the concept consisted of an originally the concept consisted of an all animal world like Disney's Robin Hood. But Bluth suggested featuring an animal world existing as a hidden society from the human world, like he did in The Secret of Nim and Disney's The Rescuers. After viewing The Rescuers, Spielberg agreed. Emmy Award winning writers Judy Frudberg and Tony Geis were brought in to expand the script. When the initial script was complete, it was extremely long and was heavily edited before its final release. Bluth felt uncomfortable with the main character's name, thinking Fievel was too foreign sounding, and he felt audience would re- audiences wouldn't remember it. Spielberg disagreed. The character was named after his maternal grandfather, Philip Posner, whose Yiddish name was Fievel. The scene in which he presses up against a window to look into a classroom filled with American school mice is based on the story Spielberg remembered about his grandfather, who told him that Jews were only able to listen to lessons through open windows while sitting outside in the snow. Spielberg eventually won out, though something of a compromise was reached by having Tony refer to Feifel as Philly. So Philly, Philly Mousekowitz with his <laughs> his uh, thick, thick accent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that Tony character reminded me of um, the Dodger from... Um, Oliver, a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like that, that type of character, you know? Yeah, exactly. The story is interesting because I feel like there's segments of it that definitely got taken out, which is probably, you know, it became too involved for to be a kid's movie. But there's definitely some parts of it that feel like they were borrowed from, like, like, like so Oliver and things like that. Um, but, yeah, it it's... It's still fun. It's it has a lot of chase scenes oh, yeah. in it, which is what I thought. Watching it this time I was like, you're just going from one chase scene to another chase scene. <laughs> it seems throughout <laughs> the whole movie. So, but it keeps it moving. I thought there were more. Ch- I think that's why I thought it was longer when I was watching it. Mm-hmm. Like I thought there were more chase scenes and more attempted drownings and <laughs> <laughs> more chasing of the cats and stuff like right. that. Right, right. But I no, I think it's pretty much how it was. It just. I guess being younger, it seemed longer. Yeah, yeah. Well, it it yeah. it does have a it is. I say it's not depressing. I don't say I wouldn't call it depressing. I think depressing has taken it too far. But it is a more serious story, and I think for that reason, it 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 seems long. Like even it's it's a short movie, but even watching it today, right. it was like I can see why it feels like it drags in in spots because it's such a kind of a sad story because, you know, he gets separated and like the whole movie is him trying to get back with them. And so the, the songs kind of help, you know, add a little bit of fun in there, but it, it is, but I think that's why it feels longer than 80 minutes because it's kind of a sad story. I remember being very, very sad and very upset that Mm -hmm. he did not find his family. So very relieved at the end. I I was, (laughs) I was very, very joyful when, you know, spoiler alert, find his family yeah exactly exactly well he has to for the sequels yeah (laughs) (laughs) right right and now these messages (sighs) what seems to be the problem pal there's so much pain in the world so many issues i don't think i can bear it well friendo it sounds like you could use a dose of pop culture roulette Pop culture roulette? What's that? Some sort of pop culture themed podcast or something? That's right, sonny boy. When hope seems far, dive into some PCR! But I already get my entertainment news from Variety. Huh, that's pretty good. If you're a chucklehead, PCR gives you news you need, condensed, unfiltered, and raw, from three nerds who know a little something about something. Wow, okay, sign me up. That's the spirit. Pop Culture Roulette. New episodes every Monday, available on all major podcast directories. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about casting and the people that were that did the voices. Some were recognizable, some I, I didn't know. So I did not know any of them. Oh, yeah. So Bluth described the process of voice casting as 
Sometimes you can select a well-known actor because it fits the essence of the character so well. Other times you need to seek an obscure voice, close your eyes and just listen to it. If it has the highs and lows and the deliverance of lines and it captures the focus of the character, it allows the animators to get a true fix of the action. So I think that's a pretty smart way to do it, which like thinking in, if this was made today, they would probably get more well-known people to do the, to do the voices uh, yeah. than they were doing back then. So, but also, you know, being the first of, uh, of this studio trying to do that, I'm sure they're trying to keep budgets down as well too. So, but uh, so Philip Glasser, who voiced Fievel, was discovered by accident when Bluth and his crew overheard him auditioning for an Oscar Meyer commercial, which I thought was great. Uh, <laughs> Philip, who was seven years old when he worked on an American Tale, recalled that his grandmother would remind him to work on his lines every day when she dropped him off at the studio for work. Hey, Philly, she would say in a thick Bronx accent, time to learn your lines. Bluth overheard their exchange one day and loved it so much that he worked into the movie. And that's how Tony began to call him Philly. Uh, yeah. So uh, Glasner continued to do plenty of voice acting work in the eighties and even popped up on a few family shows like full house and boy meets world. So I think he's just doing, he's just been a producer on things now. So. Oh yeah. I saw a list of his producing credits. I'm like, mm-hmm. wow, it's, I can't recall any at the moment, but I, I saw it pretty impressive. Like oh, yeah. oh, the kid, the kid who did the voice is now a big producer. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yep. So then you've got Amy Green, who voiced Tanya, his sister. She was a young actress who had done some previous television series work on shows like St. Elsewhere and New Heart, as well as several commercials. So she didn't really do much um, after this one, though. And, and to me, it sounded like they both sang their songs. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I, yeah I, I, know, I, I mentioned that earlier, but mm-hmm. like, like there were like little imperfections in, in some of the pitches in there, but mm-hmm. it was like it, it made it more natural, and, and I like that about that too. Yeah, because Hannah, didn't you ask the question when they were singing? Like, why were their voices cracking so much? Yeah, <laughs> I, I kept thinking that they, like, they were like three, but they were but uh, Philly is seven, mm-hmm. and I'm guessing Tanya is like probably eight. Eight or nine, I, I could. T- I would say she was older a little bit, but not by much. Yeah, because she, she, she just. I felt like she was older. I, just, mm-hmm. I felt like she was older than Philly. So. Yeah, I agree with that. So, so Nehemiah Persoff, a respected actor in many films, was chosen to voice the role of Papa Mousekwitz, mostly because he had a similar role as Barbara Streisand's father in the movie Yentl. Which I think came out in '83. Oh, so that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought he was from Fiddler of the Roof, but yeah, it was Yintel, very Yintel sounds right. Yeah, yeah exactly. What's the um the guy who 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 led him through to No, Papa, Papa, Papa Moskowitz. Oh, him. Yeah, Papa. Okay. <laughs> Eiffel. Yeah. And then Erica Yan, who voiced Mama Mousekowitz, also appeared in many TV shows since the 1970s. But her work as a Russian gypsy on the TV show Night Court attracted the attention of Bluth and John Pomeroy and cast her in that. So uh, she had done a bunch of TV stuff. I didn't even write down all the shows she had been in, but she had done a, a lot of stuff from like Cagney and Lacey to like sitcoms and dramas. So she had done a whole lot of stuff, but I guess she had played a gypsy on Night Court, and that's that was the, I guess the voice they needed. You know, it's funny. I I think I remember seeing that episode. That episode. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like a gypsy, a Russian gypsy lady. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Night Court is one of those shows that I wish I could find and go back and and watch again. So oh, yeah, and they're supposed to be rebooting it too. Yeah, I saw that. I think you know yeah. we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I'm not going to get too excited about it yet. I wouldn't. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Oh, you're good. Uh, John Finnegan won the role of Warren T. Rat by reciting excerpts of Shakespeare's Hamlet in the voice of a Brooklyn taxi driver. The idea inspired the writers to make Warren a pretentious illiterate who continually misquoted Shakespeare, which I thought was pretty funny. So I kept hearing his voice thinking it was somebody else. Like he sounded like somebody I've heard in other movies, but it wasn't him. Uh, but I think he just reminded me of probably other characters I've heard or that same kind of 
uh, accent or personality in other movies. So, right. I saw one of his credits. He's the uh, he's the damn guide in Vegas Vacation. Yes, I did see that too. Yeah, which I thought. And, was I, cool. and I listened to that voice. I was like, yeah, that is him. <laughs> <laughs> yep, the Hoover Dam uh, tour guide. <laughs> that's, that's right. That was probably the funniest part of that whole movie. It's a, well, oh, yeah. that's that's the only part of that movie that I actually remember. Right, Vegas vacation, so. and that guy helped make that pretty, pretty funny. So yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then uh, Pat Music, who voiced Tony, is one of the small number of women in animation chosen to voice a male character, which I never would have guessed that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a woman that voiced Tony in the movie. Oh, I did not know that either. Yeah, it's like I can see that happening, but I can't believe it. <laughs> Yep. There's a lot of famous, famous, you know, women, you know, oh, uh, yeah. Nancy Cartwright does Bart Simpson. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just one example, but yeah. If I would have known that before listening to her voice, I probably would have thought more, but I, I could have swore. I was like, that's gotta be like a young Ralph Macchio doing that voice. Cause it was just the, the mm-hmm. super thick accent just made me think that was what he was, but I, I knew it wasn't. I just thought that was, you know, the sound, but she said she based his voice on a friend she knew from grade school. So oh, I did it. had they picked somebody famous to do that voice, Ralph Macchio, that's exactly who I thought too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I knew it wasn't him, but I was like, right. Why didn't why did they just get him? Yeah. Cause I'm saying that's 86. I mean, it's already been out. You yeah. know, he, he was a, he was a well-established name by that point. Credit kid too was 86. I think. Yes. Yeah. He was probably too busy making the movies, but also because he became, right. He became more of a household name. They weren't going to spend the money to get him. Sure. It might sound like him, but uh, but Pat continues to do voice work today. She's been featured in many animated shows like DuckTales, Adventures of the Gummy Bears, and VeggieTales. Oh, the original The, the original DuckTales. Okay. Yeah, Hannah watches the new DuckTales. So. Oh. You like that, don't you? Oh, sort of. It's a great David Tennant. was like a Scrooge in the new one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. DuckTales, yeah. Mm-hmm. DuckTales goes into another person. I don't know if you're going to mention them or not. Uh, Hal Smith, uh, who is Mo the Rat. Oh, okay. No, I didn't have Hal Smith, of course, uh, did uh, Flintheart Glumgold mm-hmm. in DuckTales. Mm-hmm. He was also Otis. He was Otis Campbell on the Andy Griffith Show. Oh, Otis. Oh, yeah. Otis, yeah. The <laughs> drunk, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Glumgold is the one who tries to kill food all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't I there was a couple of names I was doing the casting that they said are very big in the animated voice voice world. So they've done a lot of other stuff. So uh but yeah, I didn't I couldn't get everybody. So right. But next on the list is an 80s icon, Dom DeLuise, the voice of Tiger. He had oh, worked, yes. <laughs> yeah. He had worked previously with Bluth in The Secret of Nim and even added material to the script at various points. During the song, A Duo, he suggested they stop the music where the lyrics mention back scratch and have Fifel actually scratch Tiger's back. The, uh, so, which, of course, made it to the movie, which was a good, good place there. The lovable butterball comedian was a mainstay on 1960s and 70s TV variety as a second banana or comedy relief player. He was also a very close friend of action star Burt Reynolds, and he was in a number of his freewheeling films, including Smokey and the Bandit Part 2 and The Cannonball Run 1 and 2 from 81 and 84. You just love Dom DeLuise. Mm-hmm. To me, watching it, he it sounded like he was doing a... A Burt Lar impression, you know, the uh, Cowardly Lion. Yes. I, yeah, I was just going to say that. Yep. <laughs> it was very much Cowardly Lion like voice for sure. So, but yeah. Oh, I got a, I got a whole bunch of friends. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> They're all little. Let me add them. Let me add them. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Dom DeLuise is great. He's kind of one of the forgotten actors of the 80s because I guess he was much more early 80s than later 80s. So, I mean, I, I knew the right. Cannonball Run movies. I was a big fan of those as a kid and then Smokey and the Bandit a little bit more, but I definitely knew his voice and he had done some other stuff too. Um, even as a, as a kid on popping up on TV shows and stuff. He would, he would go on to do another uh, Don Bluth film. He was in uh, all dogs go to heaven. Yep. Exactly. With, with Burt Reynolds. Mm-hmm. So that was 
that was that was a great uh, yeah. return there too. Yeah, he did a couple movies like Gene Wilder too. I think uh, yes. that later. So mm-hmm. big filmography. Mel, Mel Brooks. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, don't, yeah, Mel Brooks. So he like I said, but early, definitely more early eighties and late eighties because I think his health was declining towards the right. towards the later part of the of the of the decade. So. Henry, the bird building, the Statue of Liberty, was originally to be voiced by comedian Sid Caesar and was conceived as scraggly and worn. But later, Christopher Plummer was cast for the part and Henry was drawn with a more dignified look. Bluth felt that Henry was an essential character to act as a voice for the statue welcoming Fievel to the new world. If you don't know the name Christopher Christopher Plummer, then you haven't watched many movies in your lifetime. (laughs) <laughs> I, I saw his name pop up and yeah. I'm watching this movie. I'm like, well, where is he? Then I looked at the credits and I'm like, I had no idea. Yeah. He I didn't either. The voice of, of the bird. Yeah. I guess I, that's a good job. I didn't even know it was him. <laughs> he's played so many, he's, he's played such a, diff, a wide variety of characters over the years anyway. So yeah. But, uh, yeah, he was Mike Wallace in the insider from 1999. He was a psychiatrist in mm-hmm. a beautiful mind in 2001 most recently, he was the kindly and clever mystery writer in Knives Out, which is one of my favorite movies that came out in 2019. Okay. And so, but he'll always likely be, nah, he will also likely always be remembered as Captain Von Trapp in the classic movie musical, The Sound of Music. Great, a great actor. Yep. And then uh, last on the list, Madeline Kahn was chosen to voice the role of Gussie Mauschemeyer with the hopes that she would use a voice similar to the one she used as a character in Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles. <laughs> and she did that exactly that's what I was gonna say. Like that's the same the same voice. Right. The same exactly. accent and everything. And the same uh speech impediment and everything, right? So yep. and now these messages. What's up, dudes? I'm Jerry D of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the eighties. Toys, movies, specials, music, books, fashion, and fads. If it was gnarly during Christmas in the eighties, He's got it covered. Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the 80s and Christmas? Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooge, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas Special. Plus classics shown every year. You also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas in Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever, like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and Cabbage Patch Kids. Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gagney with the Spoon, The Other Half of the Battle, and Chant with the Littles. So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories. Later, dudes! Comic books have been around for almost a century, and in the last two decades, we've finally gotten to see many of these characters brought to life in movies and on TV. On the Moving Panels podcast, we discuss movies and TV shows based on, inspired by, and adapted from the world of comic books. Join me and my guests as we discuss both the good and the bad from Marvel, DC, and even some of the lesser-known comic book companies. Learn what is and isn't from the comics, as well as our nerdy review of the movie or show. New episodes drop every Monday, and you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So join us for Moving Panels, and I'll see you on the other side of the page. All right, well, let's talk about iconic scenes, favorite scenes. So what do you think, Chad, is the most iconic scene for you when you think about this movie? I would have to say somewhere out there is, is mm-hmm. it gets my heartstrings, even though it's, you know, the two little kids. I'm like, oh, yeah. And the song, uh, it's just, I, I didn't, I didn't read who wrote it, but that's probably the most iconic for me is the same thing. The whole, the whole somewhere out there sequence is the most iconic for me. And I, I, and watching it, he, when he got off the boat, he threw, he threw his hat. It's like, I go get my hat. Oh, yeah. yeah. That, that hat caused more problems in the movie. <laughs> yep. Yep. And throwing it, I'm like, oh, it's so irresponsible. Like, I guess as, as an older uh, older adult now, I'm like, as a kid, I didn't think anything of it, but now I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, so irresponsible. Oh, yeah. That but, was, um, he was definitely a mischievous little kid. Yeah. And even I think I made the comment when we were watching it. I was like, he's, he just, he didn't want to do what anybody tells him to do. He just, you know, he does his own thing all the time. So, right. 
and and you were talking about the um how how he he uh, Bluth wanted to do the human world and the animal world. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scene at Ellis Island. Yes, Ch- yeah. changing the names. That was mm-hmm. wow. That I didn't even as a kid that washed right over me. But oh yeah, today, definitely. Like, wow, that's. Yeah, there were a couple of songs like that today that caught me. Like I'm sure I'm that went way over my head as a as a kid, but it, think about it more now as an adult for sure. And when the uh, the the mouse Ellis Ellis Island agent asked him how many, and he said five, and then he started crying and mm-hmm. four. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm I'm too old and too much of a man to be crying. You're making <laughs> me uh, have the feels here, right? Mouse. <laughs> right, exactly. So, Hannah, what was your, what are your, some of your favorite scenes or scenes that you thought were the best scenes from the movie? Probably the part where um, they keep doing like on the boat, and they keep seeing there there no cats in America. Oh yeah, the no cats in America song. Because that's probably my favorite song. Oh okay, there you go. Soundtrack, so that's probably why. Okay, that's a good one. Any other scenes you like? I can think of right now. Oh, okay. Well, if you think of something, just let me know. <laughs> yeah, favorite scenes. I think we've kind of covered most of like this. It's a lot of chasing. I remember, I think another iconic scene for me, like watching it again today, I remembered the, um, I can't remember what they call it. You just watch it so you remember, but the whatever they called the big, uh, the the secret weapon, release the secret weapon, whatever. Oh, they the called secret the, weapon, yeah. Yeah, whatever they called the. That's what they Called it the, the giant mouse of yeah, mill you or something. It was whatever the story that Papa told at the beginning. Uh, but anyway, but I remember that coming out of the when it broke through the doors, and like watching it today, like on my TV, I was like, it looks so different now. But I'm sure as a kid, remembering it on a big screen as a kid, that was like very imposing and you know not scary, but like it was like a big. Oh my gosh, right. the thing is huge. Like it, it's it's it was a big that was a big thing to see in an animated movie, I think. So uh so didn't it have fireworks coming out yeah. before it burst open through the door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely one of my favorite or most iconic scenes for me. So but favorite is still like somewhere out there kind of takes the cake because that I think the song made the movie for me, or that's what I remember the most about the movie, is just the emotion I felt of thinking about being separated from my family and like Hannah even made the comment is like every time they're always like so close to each other and they never see each other. It's always like passing, yeah. you know, one's going to the left, one's going to the right. They're always like a couple of feet away from each other. Like look behind you, look around, stop looking straight, please. <laughs> <laughs> so just thinking about that as a kid and, and I'm pretty sure I can't say that I can remember hundred percent, but I'm pretty sure I think I cried during that song when I was a kid, when I saw it in the theater, it made me, made me tear up. Yeah. Just being sad. Don't give me that yeah. face, Hannah. You've cried. It's okay for guys to cry. It's okay. <laughs> no, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's okay for guys to cry in movies. That's right. Yeah. yeah. We're not. We're Even not... animated mice. Exactly. <laughs> Any other scenes we want to discuss before we jump into some trivia stuff? I, I remember really uh, when when it was revealed that was a William T. Rat. Yeah. Was. Spoiler alert! Is actually a cat, <laughs> right? And right. Taking off the the things in the mirror, and it's a not a two way mirror, or it's a two way mirror. Mm-hmm. That was that was a good scene. Yeah, and they, they started chasing him. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, there's like like I said, I think there's different parts of the movie that if they could have, I think they probably cut out. But like when he first, when Fievel first meets him. And he's like, he sends him to the other guy, like he's yours now. And then of course he escapes like two, three minutes later, but they never yeah. really go into like what he get to work. What work were they doing? And I found out it was a deleted scene where they're actually in a sweatshop and actually five was supposed to sing like a really happy song while they're in the, in the sweatshop, mm-hmm. but it got cut. And so uh, I thought it was interesting, but that was obviously a, you know, I felt like there was a part of the story that was missing. Like he was there and then he wasn't like, it, it seemed kind of a weird, it was a sharp turn. It was like, Oh, here we meet this rat guy and he throws him in with this other guy and then he escapes and he's off by himself again. So it just kind of felt like a weird spot. What was the point? What, was, what, what even was the point of that scene? Well, it was introducing 
the rat character because you had to see him. Then you had to see it be revealed he was really a cat later on in the movie. What was the point of the um, roach that he had? It's just comic. That was his sidekick. His little sidekick, yeah. Yeah, we couldn't figure out why he was electric though. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's a. It was a grasshopper, a cricket, or something. He was a a a cockroach. He was a cockroach. Yeah. So, but yeah, why he was electrocuted? We didn't. We didn't get that. Where what his backstory was. So. It's funny because when they're going to Hong Kong, he's like, "Oh, I guess I have to." Start counting in, in Chinese and start mm-hmm. counting in Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, which is sad in itself that the cats are being sent to, uh, to China. Mm-hmm. You know, because they say Chinese restaurants. Uh, that's what's on your uh, your menu there. <laughs> uh, oh, my goodness. Yep. So, poor things. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about a few trivia things that I found in designing the look of the film and its characters don bluth worked with amblin entertainment and the sears marketing department sears had a major marketing push on the main character he decided to make a stylistic shift from the more angular modern style of animation of the time to a style similar to disney animation from the 1940s where the characters have a more soft and cuddly feel this proved successful and at release many critics praised the old-fashioned style of the film's look and feel This was during a period when the market for nostalgia was particularly strong among baby boomers who at this time were seeking products for the young children and only three years before the beginning of the Disney Renaissance for the studio Bluth once worked for. So I think working with Sears too, they were looking at, they wanted some nice looking plush toys to sell for Christmas, which obviously worked because I got one. I was going to say, you you had one. (laughs) (laughs) It was probably in the Sears catalog too. Yeah, exactly. I probably did in the wish book that came out uh, right at Thanksgiving. So. Mm-hmm. Fievel became the mascot for Spielberg's Amblinmation Animation Production Company, appearing in its production logo until the studio until the studio was dissolved in 1997. And I do remember that. I remember Fievel being in a lot of Amblin, like other pro- other projects that weren't American Tale themed. I think. Right. I can't think of any of them right now, but I just do remember him being the logo. I think. Like the illumination for the minions. They would be mm-hmm. illumination. Right. Yeah. I'm sure the other Don Blue films and stuff like mm-hmm. that too. Yeah. Maybe it was on All Dogs Go to Heaven. It uh, might have been on that too. So the rooster one, um, Cockadoodle Doo or Rockadoodle Doo? Rockadoodle Doo. Yeah. yeah. I think it was on that one as well. Yeah. Well, well, didn't, didn't the animation become DreamWorks animation eventually? Eventually, yeah, it did. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So, okay. Yep. We talked a little bit about the music. So, Uh, Spielberg's original vision for the film was a musical. It is said that he wanted his own hi-ho kind of song, referring to the popular song from Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Jerry Goldsmith, who had worked on The Secret of Nim with Bluth, was initially supposed to work on the score, but had to drop out of the film due to a busy schedule. After he completed his work on Aliens, James Horner composed the score for the film. Initially, Bluth and his team were disappointed with the first score recording, but once edited, they found the music worked quite well. <clears throat> the final score became one of the most strongest points. So the initial actual songs were written by Tom Baylor, who had worked as a music supervisor and composer. Baylor left the project in which Cynthia Wheel and Barry Mann were later brought on to compose new songs. After the first round of songs were written, it was decided a special song would be written for Linda Ronstadt to sing over the end credits with James Ingram. Of course, that's somewhere out there. Uh, It later went on to win two Grammy Awards for Song of the Year and Best Song Written Specifically for a Motion Picture or for Television, and it would become one of the most popular songs from an animated feature since the 1950s. And I want to say I read somewhere else that actually Spielberg said he picked that song because he said that was going to he knew that was going to be a hit on radio. He was like, we're going to do the movie. We're going to do the movie version. Then we're going to have somebody else record it and put it on regular radio. He, He saw the potential in that being a big hit. So kudos to him. Right. And now he's a, not only is he a film genius, but he knows music too. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's awesome. So any of the other songs? And, and he was not. He was not wrong. <laughs> no, he was not wrong. <laughs> exactly. Were there any other songs, Hannah, that you liked? There were. Really, there were only four, really, because you had "No Cats in America," the duo, somewhere out there, and then I'm forgetting one. Oh, what was the other? Never seen ever. 
Never say never. never the one hit no. with Henry. That's that was right. it. Yep. Good job, Hannah. Coming in with good job. Coming up with clutch. Yeah. And that was a that was a fun song. Like I remember because I was one of my favorites too. You like that one too? Mm-hmm. They were very sad they they didn't put that in the James Bond movie. Oh (laughs) sorry. Yeah, no, you're good. Yeah. So I and one thing about the songs too, like the other, like somewhere out there was its own, it had its own distinct sound. But all the other songs were very much like movie musical songs. Like you said, like No Cats in America was had like that Fiddler on the Roof feel to it, like a very musical. And then mm-hmm. the duo and Never Say Never, they they all felt like kind of that movie musical kind of vibe to them. But somewhere out there was definitely different for me, I think. Which is why it stood out, maybe. Yeah. It's very, very pop friendly compared mm-hmm. to the musical friendly of the other yeah. ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, can't go wrong with a good duet too. Sometimes, sometimes the duet it gives you a couple extra points too. True. All right. So for box office and critical reception, American Tale opened in theaters on November twenty first, nineteen eighty six. It opened in third place behind Star Trek for the Voyage Home, which w- which debuted at number two. And the number one movie for the week was Crocodile Dundee, which had been in the number one spot for nine weeks. <laughs> So nobody was taking Crocodile Dundee off the top spot. So at the time of its domestic release, it became the highest grossing animated feature for an initial release and the highest grossing non-Disney produced animated feature. It was also one of the first animated films to outdraw a Disney one, beating out The Great Mouse Detective, another traditionally animated film involving mice that was released in 86, but four months earlier. So, yeah, it was a Disney movie. Uh, Mm -hmm. However, The Great Mouse Detective was more successful with critics, most notably Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. The inexpensive success of The Great Mouse Detective played a large role in the Disney renaissance due to the fact that it was both a critical and financial success, which saved Walt Disney Animation Studios from going bankrupt after The Black Cauldron had flopped at the box office a year earlier. But it definitely helped keep animation movies profitable at that point because there wasn't a whole lot coming out at that time, I think. Not like there was in the 60s and 70s, for sure. Right. And then the 90s later on. Yeah, exactly. Well, the yeah. Disney Renaissance, yeah. Yeah. Little Mermaid hit 89. That was kind of the, the launch mm-hmm. of the Renaissance. So. There you go. So Rotten Tomatoes has an American tale at 72% on the tomato meter and a 71% audience score. IMDb has a 6.9 out of 10 with a 38 on Metacritic. 38 is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. But uh, but yeah, I think it's in the it's definitely in the seventy range for me. I mean, it's it's got a lot of nostalgia, uh, to it that makes me love it. But it it has its flaws. Right. What do you think? Where'd you put it in the? Is it seventies, eighties, nineties? Out of a hundred, low eighties, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is it is classic. It is you know it is, you know, like I said, it's just one of it's Don Bluth, which I, you know. I thought he was a great animator, mm-hmm. and uh, I watched, I, I watched, I, I watched almost all of his films in in the theater, mm-hmm. even as a kid. Like I said, I saw that one. I had to have seen that one in the theater. So yeah, well, you definitely need to see. Time yeah. and <laughs> you definitely need to see Secret of Nim because I I vividly remember Secret of Nim being a movie that I loved as a kid. I and eventually, I think I did see it. Okay, I just didn't see it. In the theater, in a theater, or I got you. Early on, I was a little older when I when I had seen, but uh, yeah, that that was the first. I remember seeing that 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 was the first Don Bluth movie I saw. Gotcha, gotcha. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think, Hannah? Did you like it? Yeah. Would you give it like an A or a B or a C if you're rating it on movies? B. B. Okay, so I think we're all in the True. same in the same range so that's good for i mean for us it's got the nostalgic factor for us but for someone my daughter's age who this was made well before she was even thought of <laughs> and oh yeah but she she's still like but she's seen you've watched the the, the sequels too haven't you you didn't watch any of the sequels yeah five goes west was the second one i don't remember the names of the other ones that's the only one i saw yeah, Bible goes, Bible goes West. I remember seeing Texas, probably. It's like a Western. 
think I saw like some of that. Yeah. Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Stewart was the, the sheriff dog that Piper goes with, I believe. Oh, okay. I think when you watched it the last time, like a year or so ago, Hannah, the the second one came on right after it, and you you left before it was over. So I knew you didn't watch all that one. So, <laughs> but all right, well, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. So glad to have you. Anything else you want to add, Chad? Before we close, oh, well, I just wanted to thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm I'm, I'm a big fan of your podcast. Uh, shout out to my favorite po- uh, my favorite episode, the Stand by Me that you and uh, Laramie did. Oh yeah. Apparently, the, the majority of ones I've seen are with Laramie. I saw Superman, <laughs> the Superman ones y'all did on right. his podcast and yours, and Stand by Me. And then um, one of my favorites that you you did was uh, Little Shabahar with uh, Laramie, Bethany and, Bethany. and Laramie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you uh, you let me be a part of this and. Reviewing my childhood again. I appreciate oh, yeah. That. yeah. <laughs> Definitely have you on again. It's always good to have you. Thanks for being a part, Hannah. Were you glad to be on the episode? Yes. All right. Well, good. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to uh, follow us on the social media platforms and tell friends about the podcast. Let them know. Tell four people about it so they can listen too. Let's get the numbers up. So. I'll tell them this Okay, good. You're tell one of our teachers about it. All right, but uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the 80s Flick Flashback Podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, we have a few ways for you to do just that. One way is to send us an email to movieviewspodcast at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voice message through the Anchor app. You can find the link to leave a voice message in our episode show notes. Another way to reach us is through our social media pages. Search for 80s Flick Flashback on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, be sure to give us a five-star rating along with a stellar written review. And don't forget to follow us on Apple and Spotify as well. No matter which podcasting platform you're listening to us on, be sure to read the episode show notes to find more fun facts and behind-the-scenes trivia we just weren't able to fit into today's episode. Well, that's all for now. Join us again next time for another 80s flick flashback. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.